Hello and welcome back to The Anecdotalist, Episode 6. I'm your host, Paul Packard, and with me as always, my co-host, Jason McKinney. Hey guys, how's it going? So, I have to say, I started getting sick yesterday, so I apologize if uh, if I have some coughs here and there. Um, I have down some cough syrup with some warm coffee, so hopefully I'll be okay. But, just a heads up. Yeah, Jason's coming off six nights at the ICU, so... Um, he picked something up who knows what it was. I don't want to know. (laughs) (laughs) So tonight we're talking about the men who escaped Alcatraz part two. It's important to note that the majority of the sources we have for the escape and how it occurred came from the recollection of Alan West. So it is a firsthand recollection of what happened tonight. Although the first part of this does come from Alan West, it's important to remember that the rest of what we have is speculation and theory. This is an unsolved mystery. We do have Alan West's testimony and what the plan was supposed to be, um, but he wasn't there. So it's all kind of an assumption. Yeah, I mean, we also got like, what, 30, 40 years of in between here and now. Yeah, we a lot of time has passed. Um, 60 years. 60 years. So, I mean, what little information that we've had evolve from that time. Yeah, and so that's the thing is that we have we do have some tidbits from over the years as things have happened. Um, there are some pieces of this that maybe these people have been seen since then, um, and that'll come into play here as we get further along. So we're going to start tonight by talking about what happened immediately after West's realization that he was left. We'll then talk about the investigation, as well as the leading theories behind what happened to these men. Jason and I will then wrap up tonight's episode with our own opinions. So, Jason, are you ready? Yes, sir. You know, whenever you ask me this question, I always picture you um, beside a fireplace with a book, getting ready to tell me a story, kind of a kind of like once in a once upon a time is what I expect you to say every time you uh, get ready to go on. Are you, I, I'm thinking more like um, that propaganda poster from like World War One, where it's like, "Daddy, what did you do in the war?" <laughs> and it's like. <laughs> <laughs> I get that vibe more. I'm like, you're sitting on my lap <laughs> as a kid. And I'm like, you ready to hear about this story? <laughs> that sounded kind of creepy. But no. <laughs> good news. We're eight hours. Good. Hours is eight All right. hours apart. Oh, yeah. I'll have to edit this. Uh, really well. <laughs> so, uh, Jason, if you are ready, we're going to kick this off. Yes, sir. All right. Here we go. Okay, so first, based on the plan, West speculates the following. That they left the island around 10, 30, 11. They used the electrical cord, which was like half-inch thick cord, to help get the raft and the equipment down from the rooftop and to also assist in getting themselves down. Once at the shoreline, they would use the concertina to inflate the pontoons below the raft. They would then head towards Angel Island and then sink the raft in order to avoid detection. Once in San Francisco, they would steal a car, get guns, 
and get as far from the city as quickly as possible. West also talks about how he didn't really trust the Anglins, and there was a discussion between him and Morris to split from them sooner than later once they were free. But this wouldn't take place until they were far from San Francisco, because the idea was to get as much ground covered as possible before they were discovered missing. So I just want to say this kind of feels like a video game vibe. My wife is playing this Red Dead Redemption. She's part of this gang where they're like constantly worried about other gang members going to kill each other. And this kind of gives that vibe. And slash Grand Theft Auto because, you know, they got to steal a car. You know, it's not steal a horse, it's steal a car. So I guess more Grand Theft Auto vibes than uh, Red Dead Redemption. It does have that like the clock is ticking you have X amount of time to get from here to here, from here to here, from here to here to make your escape. And I think that's what they were going with. It's like we get out of our cells. We get into the water by 10, 30, 11. They're not going to know that we're missing until they stand up, uh, do that first count at 7 a.m. And then that gives us about eight hours of runway to get from point A to point B, from point B to point C. And then by the time they figure it out, they're they're long gone. They're on the road. That's where it's, what makes it so tough is that we kind of know what the game plan was, but in reality, who knows where or if they were successful. And if they were successful, they had a, a huge head start. Yeah, and there's no dying and coming back. <laughs> yeah, there's no checkpoints. There were counts at midnight, 3 a.m., 6 a.m., and 7 a.m., when there was a shift change and the way they did this was by shining their flashlight up at the ceiling in the cell to see the prisoners in their bed. So they would never shine the light like directly in their face because the last thing they wanted to do was upset the prisoners by waking them essentially every three hours. They literally just pointed the light straight at the top of the ceiling, which illuminated the, the cell just enough that they could see them. So that made the dummies that much more believable because they were never viewed in direct light. So the morning count takes place at 7 a.m. They all get together with their counts, uh, but the officer from B block, he doesn't come down because normally after a count, they would all meet in one location and verify their numbers. So the lieutenant on duty, Bill Long, he goes down to check on what's going on. The officer doing the count says, Bill, I, I can't get this guy up. Bill walks up to John England's cell. He bumps his head with the butt of his flashlight and it crumbles a little bit and falls into the floor. So Bill is shocked by this and kind of jumps back. At this point, all of B Block starts yelling and cheering in excitement because it appears they got away. So I Googled this and the pictures of these molds is hilarious, man. You have to like you have to Google the pictures of these molds they made. You know, they're not shining the light directly on them. You know, I guess it could kind of pass as a head, but man, these <laughs> these are some pretty rough crafts. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of two things, I think. One, they only had so much to work with. Like they use soap and I think they also use like rags and stuff to kind of build it, make it bulky. The other part of it too, is that that there was some discussions around why do the officers not realize that they weren't in their cells? If, if you've seen the pictures of that, you also need to look at pictures of what it would look like in the cell. So the blankets pulled up covering part of the face. The hair looks pretty realistic it's like really close inspection. Yeah, you would notice, but I think at just like a glance, you would see them in there and you'd keep going. It was enough to get by. And the pictures they have online, I don't know how old those pictures are because yeah, some of them crumbled a little bit, but I don't think it was like, I don't know if it's a combination of it being old and cracked, but it was just enough to get by 
with what they needed it for for that night. Probably just, okay, well, there's a bulk in the bed, you know? There's something there. It's got to be them. There's no way this place is escapable, so not like we have to look that hard. Yeah, that's the big thing. Yeah, they're, they're assuming that they're in bed already. They're not looking that hard. They see the they see a lump in bed. They see hair. They might not even shine the light. I mean, in reality, that assumption is so far. If they were inspecting each cell to make sure the person was laying there, then you're like, yeah, how did you not see that? But if they assume the person is there and they kind of glance and see hair and ear and a lump in bed. They're probably like, Oh, they're there. They're not even second guessing it. So something interesting I read was that they would empty the toilets and basically use them as a connected telephone line through the cells. So one of the officers, Freeman pepper, he listened to a conversation that day and he heard West break down what happened and Freeman writes it all down. So it's basically all the stuff we already talked about from West's official statement. But I did notice in this version of what happened, Wes gives the timeline is basically they all started leaving by 8.15, which I think explains the 8 p.m. count from earlier. Do you remember earlier where I was like confused by when they left the cell and whether or not the dummy was in the bed by a certain time? So this police officer heard Alan West telling everybody after like the next day, he heard them saying, they all started leaving by 8.15, and then they were all out by 9.30. So they left 15 minutes after the 8 o'clock count. So that's kind of the morning after the escape. And I want to note that the men typically worked between the hours of 5 p.m. and about 7.38. And to avoid being caught up in the count and shown as missing, they would try to time it between those counts. So from here, we're going to cover the manhunt and the search that took place. Then we'll get into some theories. So officially, the FBI closed the case on December 31st, 1979. They received no credible evidence of their whereabouts or even if they succeeded. Currently, the responsibility lies with the U.S. Marshal Service. So in the immediate aftermath of the night of the escape, other than the official statements and information regarding the events, essentially what we discussed earlier, statements from prisoners, guards on shift, and of course, Allen, there was a search that was conducted in and around Alcatraz in the greater San Francisco area. They initiated the procedures they had in place when an escape would happen. They utilized bloodhounds on Alcatraz Island, which basically just led them to the water's edge. The only real evidence on Alcatraz itself, besides what was sitting on top of their block, there were actually footprints leading away from the prison. But again, these led them to the water's edge. So going off of Allen's word, they began their manhunt. The FBI, the Coast Guard, U.S. Marshals, and Army troops, they were all dispatched to the area to search for the men. They had boats, they had a helicopter, and then, of course, they had manpower. In San Francisco, you also had the local police in on the manhunt. So this gained nationwide traction. Newspapers and articles were running with this, and it was quickly becoming a circus. Wow, man, that's crazy. You have all this manpower, and like, how long did it take for all of them to muster up this manpower in the military to start looking for these three guys? Do you know? I think it was pretty quick. I think they were right on it really fast. Uh, but again, like we said earlier, they had like an eight hour head start. So they pulled all this together really fast. But if you have an eight hour head start and you're that far south, I mean, they could easily have been in Mexico by this point. Oh, wow. So J. Edgar Hoover was the director of the FBI at the time. And one problem they ran into was the press and the explosion of information that essentially just became a spectacle. It got so bad that Hoover had to basically tell his staff, to get it together and, and stop leaking information and evidence to the press. The press, in return, blasted Hoover for the ease in which three men could escape the most locked down prison in the nation. 
and there was an incentive to wrap this up really cleanly. This is note not to piss off the media. And also, J. Edgar Hoover, he's actually the creator of the FBI. Yeah, he was the, um, he's a big name in like Ameri- American politics, especially in the 20th century. So initially they found two rafts, but quickly determined they're not the ones used in the escape. The first piece of evidence they do find is one of the life jackets. It was about 50 feet offshore of the San Francisco coast. I do think it's kind of funny that they found two rafts <laughs> during all this. And they're like, oh, it's not this one. And they found another one. Oh, it's not this one. Like, how many rafts are just floating around the bay? Yeah, that, and I feel like these rafts that they made should have been pretty freaking obvious that they came from a prison. I mean, they were all, like, glued together raincoats. Like, how is that not obvious that it's... I think they knew pretty quickly that it wasn't what they were looking for. But it's just funny that they found two rafts during this process. So who's, whose rafts were they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, they're just, like, these random people, like, dying out there. just Yeah, and they just disregarded it. Like, oh, we find a random raft, and some guy's, like, treading water <laughs> by himself <laughs> in the bay. Like, yeah, don't worry, it's not the prisoner, just let him go. <laughs> He's drowning! Yeah. <laughs> so, after this, they recover a package from the water, made with the same material they used to make the raft. They cut it open, and they find the Department of Justice receipt for $10, deposited into Clarence England's account by Rachel England. And then also pictures of a young brunette, presumably Clarence's girlfriend. So this is like the first piece of evidence they actually find. I think that's fairly important um, that links anything to anybody. I mean, the life, the life jacket's important, but like they actually have something that have, that has Clarence England's name on it. And I think what's really important about this is that if it's so important that they put this package together, how did he lose this? Did he drown and this kind of like floated? Or did he like in this whole process, did he just drop it in the water by accident? What's to throw them off? I think it's really interesting that they found this presumably really important, something really important to Clarence and it was floating in the bay. Yeah. It kind of also wants, you know, to throw them off actually kind of makes sense. You know, you go to one side of the Island, you throw that out in there and then you, run to the other side i don't know yeah i don't know it's interesting too because i think what's important to know is that there were some names written on the slips of paper like in that box so one of the names was mr jack burnham as well as his office address so he was a trial lawyer that worked with a lot of alcatraz convicts on their appeals and he was also pretty close with the kennedys of whom robert kennedy would go on to close alcatraz that's interesting yeah so the assumption here is that Burnham, being a trial lawyer and representing the men who were sentenced to Alcatraz, he may have been sought after by these guys if they were caught and they basically needed to lawyer up. And so there was no evidence linking Burnham to an escape plan other than his name and address written on this slip of paper. Another name was that of T.J. Inyert. So he was the cousin of Alcatraz prisoner June Hayward Stevens. So Stevens was interviewed by the FBI, but he denied any knowledge of the escape. So we can speculate that Stevens provided a contact to the men to reach out to once they were on the outside, but there's no concrete evidence of that other than this person's name. So the address to the father of William Billy Boggs, another Alcatraz prisoner, was found. So the FBI staked out this address, but never gathered any sufficient evidence, and they didn't find the three escapees. So the thought, again, similar to Stevens' cousin, is that the men were given a name and address of a potential friendly ally in case it was needed to assist in their getaway. But again, 
nothing came of it. So pretty much these guys are just criminalizing these other guys. I mean, like, they're literally just putting these guys on the list, and each of these guys are now, like, huge suspects in this huge case. Yeah, it's like one of two things. Either A, so you look at it as, like, a decoy. They put these names on there to distract the police force to send them down, like, wild goose chases. Or B, these were actually important people that they were going to utilize, but they drowned in the water and never got to use them. So that's kind of really it for the contents of this pouch. So there's some other stuff in there that's considered unimportant, like a picture of the England's niece. But all of the slips of paper essentially lead them nowhere. That's kind of interesting. Why Why does this guy got a picture of his niece? I don't know. Maybe he loved his family, Jason. <laughs> I guess. That's just kind of interesting, though. Like you, He didn't have any kids, so maybe that was his closest like loving relationship. So the search continues and the Coast Guard finds paddles off the southern coast of Angel Island, which, as said before, was the destination of the first part of the escape. A little after this, they find rubber, which they believe to be from the prisoner's raft, which was washed up on the shore near the Golden Gate Bridge. It's heavily shredded. So a couple things here. The paddles on the shore of Angel Island may indicate the men made it to their first destination. The shredded raft, although sounds like it indicates total loss, may again, following West's description of the plan, where once at Angel Island, it was sunk to help avoid detection. So it kind of would make sense if, um, like, they followed their plan again. Because, I mean, this is all coming from West. Like, you know, West knew the plan. You know, it makes sense if they kind of threw a fork in the plan because they're like, okay, well, you know, we left a guy back in the prison. We know he's probably going to rat us out because we just betrayed him. Maybe we need to adjust our plan and do some different things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think honestly, my, my thought, and I think we get into this a little bit later. I think they made it to at least Angel Island. And I say that because if the paddles are on Angel Island, that doesn't really make sense because the bay, the water in the bay is pushing west. Angel Island is north. So I don't think they're as worried about West knowing their plan as much as they're going to sink that raft so that it's not visible in the immediate aftermath. Because I think what they were doing with sinking that raft is, or like cutting it up or whatever, was to make sure that no one saw it sitting on Angel Island in that intervening period of time before they knew that they were missing. I think that's really what was the, was the idea. And so I guess we'll get into the theories here in a bit, but I think they at least made it there because those paddles made it there. A second life jacket is found about 50 feet off the shore of Cronkite Beach by a man named Robert Peterson. So the location of the beach is west of Alcatraz Island on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. So basically on the ocean side. So one quick note is that Alcatraz sits directly in the middle of the bay. And like I said earlier, Angel Island is north, but it's about uh, two miles north of Alcatraz. So remember, that current is pushing, pushing, and pushing everything west towards the ocean. So if the men did drown, the raft being at the base of the bridge and this jacket being on the Cronkite Beach would indicate the men were swept out to sea. But the paddles being on Angel Island kind of makes you think they at least made it there. Yeah, highly suspect. Yeah. So this second jacket is pretty much the same as the first, and they're both looked at in a laboratory. So there's some grease, adhesive, and a plastic tube to blow the jacket up. Um, and that's really it. 
So investigators at first thought the jacket was covered in blood. And that's really what led to the lab testing of the jackets. Of course, it wasn't blood. It was grease. Um, and there are pictures online of this inventory evidence um, recovered from the water and the pictures of the jackets. And I mean, it looks like they have blood on them. Uh, but, you know, the lab work came back. It was grease. But if you look at the pictures online, my first thought, too, is like, man, it looks like someone got like brained while wearing this jacket. <laughs> Maybe that was another goal was for that grease to look like blood. And they wouldn't think twice about it. They just throw the jackets away and be like, well, they're dead. Yeah, who knows? It could have been like they splattered it on there to make it look suspicious. Um, or they just were in a messy environment and that's just what happened. I mean, it's a prison. Obviously, it's going to be messy. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, not like they have the cleanest like work environment. So one thing I want to make a quick note of is the adhesive that was used is not the same adhesive that Morris had access to in his shop. And I'm not really sure what that implies, but it is kind of something to think about because I remember when they when he first got into the shop, and um, they talked about the rim weld uh, adhesive that he had access to. When I was reading that book, it made a point to say it's not the same adhesive as they on, as used on the raft and the life jacket and all that stuff. I don't know why, but that's just something to think about. So I was kind of, you know, I kind of wonder if maybe the adhesive that they used in the shop, I wonder if um, it couldn't be used because either the material or, you know, it, maybe it dissolved in water. Um, I wonder if that's why they had to get a different adhesive. Yeah, like it wasn't good enough and they had to do something different. Like maybe they thought it was good initially, but it wasn't. I wonder if he had to mix some chemicals or something. Because this guy, he got science uh, magazines, right? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe he figured something else that was better. Um, they also sewed the stuff together. So maybe he figured out how to make them watertight without using the rim weld that he had access to. So that's pretty much everything that's pulled from the water. So in addition to this evidence, the contents of the secret workshop above B block is gathered as well. So there was an unfinished raft, additional life preservers and materials such as glue recovered and reviewed. So this is important in that the materials recovered from the top of B block resemble that of the material recovered from the water and upon laboratory testing. So they were confirmed to be the same make and materials. Interesting. So I point this out because without this testing, it's possible to say that these materials were not that of the escapees. So, because you know, remember, two other rafts were pulled from the water and they weren't linked to them. So, being able to test basically what they found against what they, what they knew was theirs above B block, they were able to match everything to say, okay, this was effectively what they utilized to get off the island. So, moving forward, we're going to talk about um, and kind of blend the search with the theories. I mainly say that because the information that links to the theories predominantly comes from the investigation. And so like any investigation, there are certain leads and unanswered questions that become the seed of theories of some of the big theories we're going to cover. Remember, the FBI is under an immense pressure by the media, but also the populace to wrap this up quickly in a way that shows some type of competence. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure this um, Edgar Hoover guy, like he just created the FBI. And for him to have something on his record showing that three men escaped from Alcatraz, the most heavily guarded prison, is not going to look good on this guy's record. Yeah, it doesn't look good. It definitely doesn't. And so the public eyes on this situation, because it's like, I think it's like everything, right? Where there's this sense of the government, civilization, they have it all figured out. And then when something happens that like goes directly against that, it causes a little bit of panic, 
whether or not it really affects you directly, like none of these people were going to be directly affected by these three prisoners escaping. But I think it, it puts like a wheel in the spokes of everyone's confidence and what's going on. So it's like, okay, how do we reel this in? How do we fix this to make it to kind of ease everyone's minds again? Yeah, that makes sense. Wrap it up quick. Yeah. So that being said, the first theory we have basically just covers the possible death of the escapees. On July 17th, SS Norfell, a Norwegian freighter making its way up to Canada, passes by San Francisco Bay and the Golden Gate Bridge. So two members of her crew basically look out on the water and they spot a body floating face down about 20 miles northwest from the Golden Gate Bridge. So this is about five weeks after the escape. So they see a single body bobbing in the water. They don't have the proper radio communication channels to report it, so they write it down in their ship's log and they just keep going. They can't really see the upper part of the body, but they do recall the legs being covered in a light-covered trouser, possibly white pants. Okay, so this that doesn't make sense. So just possibly white pants. I mean, wouldn't it be like at least black and white stripes or... I mean, I I recall like seeing the old prison movies and like seeing like jean type pants, but not just straight white. I've never seen a. I, mean, I don't think anyway. Or do did they have white pants in prison outfits back then? I think it was more like a blue jean ish material. But the FBI, when they're interviewing these crew members about uh, the prison clothes, they determined that if there was a match. Uh, that the pants could have been bleached by the sun. So, because it was in direct sunlight for like five weeks. So, this blue jean material would come off as white. It wouldn't be any other color. So, they're saying like, okay, yeah, these pants are white, but maybe the, the blue jeans style color being in direct sunlight would turn them white. So, that's how they're kind of trying to tie this together. Yeah, I don't buy that one. No, but the officials start to begin to speculate and believe that this is at least one of the guys. So we do have a few things to talk about here, and I don't want to get too gruesome, so I'll do my best to say this in a way that's like not super disgusting. Uh, there's a lot of play when it comes to a human body and a body of water, so there are many conditions in which can cause a body to float or sink, and what time frame. And the book that I, I was reading for this does kind of go really heavily into like, the different conditions like weather temperature of the water food contents in their stomach things like that i'm not going to get into like the nitty-gritty of it um but bodies have been recovered from water one day after up to two weeks after and so a lot of that again has to do with the environment but a good portion has to do with decomposition and what causes a body to sink or float again body mass food eating leading up to the to the death and then gases produced by the body the officials began thinking and suggesting that this body they found uh, is one of the prisoners, but it was floating 20 miles Northwest. And that's going to be important here in a second, five weeks after the escape. So many people have died in San Francisco Bay. And I mean, like just from 1960 to 1962, 35 people killed themselves jumping from the golden gate bridge. And some were recovered and some weren't. Dang, Paul, I gotta tell you, you're not convincing me to move to San Francisco. I would never try to convince anybody to move there. <laughs> I, I was there once. I think it's important to see. I think it's cool, historical. Uh, but yeah, I would not want to live there. So visit and go. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun to see at least once. It's a nice area. It's beautiful. 
lot of history, but yeah, I wouldn't want to live there. I mean, it sounds like the odds of you seeing someone jump off the bridge might be uh, pretty pretty high. Well, maybe back then. Now they have. I don't think it happens as frequently as it did back then. I think back then it was like, yeah, over a two year period. I mean, thirty five people jumped. Now they have a lot more safety measures in place. I think so. The bay has an interesting tidal pool. So remember earlier we discussed the pool of the tide and things washing out to the ocean as well as collecting or getting hung up at the base of the bridge. So the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers developed a model of the bay to help determine where these men could have ended up. So this was actually one of the things I was incredibly intrigued by as a kid. And I've not been able to find it while doing the research for this episode. But when I was a kid, I remember watching a special with my dad. I was probably like 10 years old. And they built a model and discussed the water temperature, the tide, and the different scenarios of what could have happened to these men. And, and of course, it was like a History Channel special. So they basically just conclude that they could have died or they could have escaped. There's no actual conclusion other than like, yeah, both options are possible. <laughs> but um, I do remember watching that as a kid and being like, wow, they could have made it. It was a very eye-opening experience. <laughs> So the model made by the Army indicates that the water that night would have been between 52 and 55 degrees. So the water would have been stagnant at 10 p.m. So before the tide pushes into the bay, and then around 10, it hits like an equilibrium. And then by midnight, it pulls at its peak strength towards the ocean. Um, so again, just think about like high tide, low tide. Tide kind of goes up, 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 and it pushes up into the bay. And then as it begins to recede, there's this like equilibrium moment. And then it has this hard pull back out to the ocean as low tide kind of pulls in. And that peaks again around midnight. And so it does this about until about 5 a.m. So it's pulling towards the ocean until about 5. So if the men hit the water about 10, 30, 11, and they needed to travel two miles by paddle, they would be in the water around peak tide pool. There we have the likelihood that the water was pulling at peak strength during the time they would have been in the bay. So the issue is that the body scene was discovered 20 miles northwest when typically bodies recovered from deaths in the bay travel south along the shore of the Pacific. So this body was in the wrong area to be that of the body of someone from Alcatraz that died in the bay. That body shouldn't be 20 miles northwest. It should be south. So I just got to say, I, I, <laughs> I am Googling how long it takes for flesh to decompose in water. Um, I'm probably going to end up on like the FBI list. Um, why are you looking up for how long it takes for flesh to decompose in water? But it, it takes a while. Actually, I, I thought for sure it would take less than five weeks, but I think it, um, I think two weeks is what I was seeing. But we also take, had to take in consideration um, sharks and animal life that would be eating on these bodies. Yeah, and like I said earlier, I didn't want to get too gruesome, but there is a there is like the marine life that comes into play because bodies will float because of gases that build up in them. Um, and if that body is compromised in any way and those gases release, they will sink. And that includes critters and things in the water eating at them, which is really gross to think about and, and sad if you really think about what might happen to somebody's body as you know, it floats around in the bay. And, you know, I've worked EMS for a while. Like I, you know, without trying to get once again, too gruesome, I've seen the decomposure of bodies, you know, just sitting in a house for a week. It's amazing how quickly the body decomposes. 
um, let alone in the water for five weeks. I mean, yeah, I hate to say, it, I mean, I'm definitely no expert, but from what I've experienced, that's not possible. It's not possible for it to be one of these guys from Alcatraz. Yeah. And, and just to kind of piggyback off that, it, it is important to note that uh, the, the San Francisco County coroner, Henry Turkle. So he, he was probably someone that had a lot of experience with bodies in the Bay so just noting over the two-year period before this, the 35 people that had killed themselves jumping in, jumping into the water from the bridge, he indicated that he thought there was just no way that this body could be theirs. So as when the body was seen floating out there, it had been five whole weeks since the escape. And in his experience, they had never really recovered anyone longer than two weeks. So to your point, again, not to get too like nitty-gritty about decomposition of human bodies, but it's highly likely that a body at that point would have already sunk. So he actually adds that with three bodies, it was likely that one of them would have been seen if they had drowned. So in his experience, that was just too highly and extremely improbable because you have to think about this in, in two ways. There, a body was found five whole weeks later, but think about all the people searching the bay throughout this whole time period. The fact that three people... If they all had drowned, at least one of them would have been floating around in the bay. And you had tons and tons of manpower searching this area. They found life jackets. They found other stuff floating. You would assume that they would find at least a body, at least one of these bodies. But of the three men, they find nothing. And he basically says it's extremely improbable that that would happen. So I do want to get back to that body, though, that was discovered by the Norwegian men. Uh, so another very interesting thing happened the night of the escape. So a man by the name of Seymour Webb jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge to his death. So if we're going to claim that a body discovered five weeks later after the night of the escape as one of the escapees, why not also suggest against this timeline and against the current of the bay pushing south that maybe it was Webb. So he jumped to his death approximately the same time that the inmates entered the water and he was swept out the sea. So it's actually, I think it's really interesting that we're so focused on these three people going into the water. There was a fourth person that hit the water that night in the bay. Um, and it was someone that was jumping from the bridge, killing themselves. Can you imagine like you're like escaping Alcatraz and you're like, ironically look up and you see this guy falling from the bridge and you're like, Oh man. Yeah. Like conceptually speaking, you're like trying to be quiet and like sneak off. And it's a decent distance. I think, so they might not have actually seen that, but they're theoretically, they could have seen this guy kill himself because it happened around the same time they that they went off on their escape. The additional part of this is that the buoyancy of the raft and life jackets could have facilitated an even greater likelihood of being pulled out to sea. There would be less drag on them in the water if they were more buoyant by, by being on an inflatable. So the current could have had a bigger pool because they had something inflatable with them. And so one last point I want to make is that in February of 1963, a partial skeleton was found washed ashore near Point Reyes Coast Guard Station. So ribs, a pelvis, and two femurs um, were discovered on this shore. And so could this have been one of the escapees? Maybe, but without proper forensics in 1963, there's really no way of knowing. But a body was found in February of 63, and these guys entered the water June of 62. Yeah, and you said there's 35 people that tried to commit them. 
suicide between 1960 and 1962. I mean, yeah, easily there could have been one of those bodies too. I mean, enough people jump in the water at this, at this area. So I want to come back to the wooden paddles found on Angel Island. So how, if the tide pulled west out towards the ocean, did these paddles end up two miles north of Alcatraz on the island they had planned on landing on? And so this actually leads us to our next theory. And that theory is they got away. So I know we talked about there being theories, like plural. There's really only two theories. Either A, they got away, or B, they died in the water. Uh, we will talk about things that that might lead multiple pieces of each one, of course. But um, there's really just two major theories. And they either A, got away, or B, they died in the water. So we know that the plan was to land on Angel Island. And those wooden paddles were found on the shore of Angel Island. They were then to sink the raft and head inland. So their plan was to steal a car and drive off into the sunset. So one thing I want to mention as well is that Clarence and John were competent swimmers. So remember earlier in part one, we talked about how they used to swim in Lake Michigan and like the ice cold waters when they were kids. So they were experienced in swimming in cold, icy waters. That water was much colder than, than San Francisco Bay. I mean, they obviously had a raft, though, so they wouldn't have to swim. Yeah. Also, they might they would have limited contact with the water if their raft worked, too. So I also want to point out something here really quickly. And so today, if you choose, you can make the swim from Alcatraz to San Francisco yourself. So swimmers do this every year. So the Alcatraz swim is a two-mile swim from Alcatraz in open water to St. Francis Yacht Club in San Francisco. Of course, when doing this, they have... Uh, the correct gear but noting that this is a regular event that takes place every year i mean if the stories are true and these guys are competent swimmers who's to say they couldn't swim uh, from alcatraz island to san francisco the only caveat is i'd like to make is that that swim is south uh, and where they had gone they planned on going north to angel island so that is a further distance than going from Alcatraz to the San Francisco, the St. Francis Yacht Club in San Francisco. But it is possible, again, to swim from that island to shore. So it's possible that they just got up there, put their paddles on Angel Island, and then swim the rest of the way. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so I gotta ask here, too. You said a stolen car. Was there any cars like they were stolen that day or that night? Yeah, so that's the other thing, is that there's nothing to say that anything was stolen. There was no reported thefts from that night. So no vehicles went missing the night of the escape. What about within like the next few weeks? No, I, I, that's the thing is I don't think any cars, they basically said they didn't think any cars had been stolen um, in that time period. So it's, it's interesting that like that was part of the plan, but cars weren't stolen. I wonder if someone like provided a car for them to, um, at the shoreline, you know? Yeah, and so there's actually a couple theories as to people they may have come in contact with after getting to San Francisco. We'll get into those here in a second. So like I mentioned earlier, seeds of theories often stem from partial pieces of evidence and statements. So to quote Escaping Alcatraz by Michael Esinger and David Windner, quote, Frank Price commented, all U.S. legal attaches in Central and South America have been alerted to be on watch. If they survived which remains to be proven, they could now be somewhere in South America, end quote. They began speculating that it's possible these guys could be in South America. And 
another prominent theory is that once they made landfall, they fled south to the Mexican border and just kept on going. So there's multiple pieces of evidence that leads to this. First, in reference to Frank Pierce commenting on extending their search south, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, he received a memorandum that Clarence England was living in Rio de Janeiro under a fake identity. But they never really confirmed that. Uh, but a, a friend of the Anglins, Fred Brizzy, claimed to have seen them in Brazil and was actually able to produce cards sent to him, including photographs of two men resembling the Anglins from 1975. So you could go online and look at these pictures. They, they have that true 70s look to them. The photo isn't the best quality, and the men are wearing sunglasses, so their identity was never really confirmed. But it does kind of look like these guys, and it was taken in 1975, so what, 13 years later? So this is my question is, why why in the world would you go south to Mexico? Are you just trying to get over the border? Why not go east? Yeah, if you go east, you're going to hit U.S. population. And that's the thing is that these guys, these, their faces were all over the newspapers around the U.S., so they're going to go south across the border to Mexico to make their escape because they're, you know, that's the thing, right? As always, the old movies are always trying to make it to the border because they're trying to get to somebody else's jurisdiction, essentially. So the most interesting pieces of evidence that came up time and time again are these postcards. So their friend Brizzy got them. Their family members claimed to have gotten them. Postcards made their way to the warden of Alcatraz simply saying, haha, we made it with all three men's names written on it. However, th that last one could easily just be some random kids playing a prank. The print was never conclusively matched to the men or their like handwriting. So supposedly a man by the name of Bud White, so this is Morris's cousin, claimed that in 1962 he was paid by Morris to bribe the guards and then he met up with him just days after the escape in San Diego. So White's daughter later confirmed this meeting. Supposedly Morris's cousin saw him after the escape. So that's one of the claims. So this kind of makes sense because he likes, you know, hide out in town for a little while until the heat dies down and then go to the south. That's what I would do. Yeah, I mean, so if he met up with him days later, he went to San, he went to San Diego, and which would make sense because it's kind of on the way to the border. And if he meets up with Morris days after the escape, maybe there was like an exchange of funds or something there. On the other part of this, Robert Anglin, so Clarence and John's brother, claimed that in 1989, when his father died, two unidentified men showed up and cried over his dad before quickly leaving. So similarly, I, and I remember this from when I was younger and watching the special with my dad, that when their mother died in 1973, two tall men wearing heavy makeup allegedly attended the funeral. Family members believe it was them. And one other quick note, their mother received flowers anonymously every year leading up to her death. So two strange men, when their dad died and when their mother died, visited both them at their funerals. So the question is, was it them? Was it the two brothers going to the, to see their dad one last time, going to see their mom one last time? So here's my question there, though, is would you walk in, look at your brother as your mom and dad died, just kind of like look at him and then walk out. Would you not like when I like console your brother or your the rest of your family as you know, one of the family members died. I kind of wondered about that myself. 1989. I mean, you're looking at what 27 years later after the escape, you probably haven't seen your brother. in, I mean, probably 30 years at that point. And so you would assume that they want to at least like make contact. 
But at the same time, it might be one of those things where it's like, we're going to be in, we're going to be out. We're going to see dad, we're going to see mom, and then we're going to leave. And we're not going to talk to anybody. We're not going to give up our, our cover. We're not going to get caught. Because they maybe even think like, what if the police are here? What if the FBI is here? So maybe that's part of it. Like, yeah, I would want to talk to my sibling that I haven't seen in 30 years probably. But at the same time, it's like they're going to be cognizant of possibly being caught by by the FBI. That makes sense. Before we get into like what we think about what happened to these guys, I, I have two quick theories I thought I needed to include. So a man by the name of John Leroy Kelly. So on his deathbed, he claimed to have picked up these men from their boat. He was given 40000 from the family to pass on to them so that they could make their escape. So his claim is that he murdered the three men and dumped their bodies, keeping the cash to himself. So he told the authorities where the bodies were, but they found no bodies when they went and searched the area. But we have a deathbed confession that he stole 40000 and killed these three guys after he picked them up. Like he was involved in this escape plan and murdered them for the money. So that's that's one of these kind of weird offshoot theories that I wanted to just include. That's what we call dementia. Yeah. He just made it up on his deathbed, or he really truly believed that he killed these guys for 40K. 40,000. How much would that have been back then? I mean, that's a lot of money. I don't think it's three murders worth, though, Jason. <laughs> I mean, it depends, on, it depends on what type of guy that is. Just kidding. I'm kidding. Obviously, I'm in the medical field. I'm here to help people. Yeah, you're going to get your license revoked. I'm going to turn him in. This guy right here, officers. <laughs> so, lastly, in 2018, the FBI received a letter from a man claiming to be John England. So he said the other two had since passed and that he would turn himself in in exchange for medical treatment. But they could never authenticate the letter and they never heard from this writer ever again. So it's kind of like this random letter shows up with a claim that it's John. He's the last of the three. He needs medical treatment um, and he'll turn himself in for it. But nothing ever comes of that. It could have either been John or it could have been a prankster. So that's it. So we have the two theories. A, they died. B, they escaped. Or B.1, they were murdered after their escape <laughs> for 40K. <laughs> so just just think, those are that's what we have. That's what we have for every, all the theories and stuff that have been written down. Um, and I think at this point, we might just need to talk about what we think of what happened. Okay, so I honestly, like, this is... This is, I mean, it makes sense why this story has gotten so much spotlight. Because, I mean, it really is kind of hard to tell. Honestly, though, if I had to bet money on it, um, I would honestly think that they, they died. Um, you know, I looking into this, there's, you know, there's actually sharks in this bay. I don't know if you, like, I was looking at this. Um, there's 11 species that have been seen uh, near Alcatraz. Um, and you know, they, the most common time to see these sharks is the time that they were in the waters. So this was the season for there to be a lot of sharks in that water. Um, and then at the same time, you said, what time did they break out of the drill? They like 11 o'clock, right? Yeah. They, they were speculated to have been in the water by 1030 to 11. So the tide picks up at midnight brushing them out to the sea so i mean they have an hour to book it to angel island 
I mean, if anything went wrong, which it did, they had to get the other guy out of jail or they were trying to break him out. They got the sharks all around the island. They also find this, you know, waterproof bag of names and pictures. I find that kind of ironic that they would just randomly leave that, um, especially because they, they're not going to memorize those names, you know? They need that addresses. And then there's a picture of Clarence's girlfriend, I think you said. So, I mean, you know, everybody wants to keep a picture of their girlfriend. They wouldn't just throw that out. Um, and then they were, like I said, they were swimming against the current because uh, that current picks up between midnight and five. And, I mean, you know, you know as well as I do, swimming against the current is really hard. The other piece of this is that they never, cars were never stolen for the escape. So I think that's, that is also a, a tick in your favor is that no, no vehicle was ever taken to make that escape. I mean, that makes sense too, but if they were like talking to people in prison and they were getting stuff set up, I could see someone like putting a car at the edge of the island and being like, here you go. I mean, but then again, if West said that their plan was to steal a car, then it makes sense that they didn't have somebody to have a car there for them. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember this and I, and I'm, and it's like a, a vague memory. I'm not sure where I saw this, but I thought I had read somewhere that supposedly Clarence Anglin's girlfriend might have also been there to pick them up to drive them south so that's also a possibility as to why a car didn't need to be stolen and the anglins could have split from morris and morris or they could have dropped morris off in san diego for him to meet up with his cousin but i mean again i don't know but i think you I, i get what you're saying it does it does make sense that they could have easily died in the water it could have easily been the theory. Yeah, I mean, the, the ocean is really hard to pull against. Yeah. Especially at nighttime. I, I want to believe that they made the escape. So I I, I think, I, I for me, the, the paddles being on Angel Island, I think that indicates they at least made it there because you're talking about this current. I know the current's really important to talk about. If the current is pulling them west out to the ocean, you know, high tide or whatever, low tide, pulling them out there. How did their paddles end up so far north on the island? Their paddles should have ended up somewhere else. How did those end up on the island? Unless the only thing I could think of is that tide going back in in the morning, pushed the paddles back like northeast onto the island. But you would assume by then, if the life jackets and everything else were out to sea or further out, you would assume by then that the paddles be out there too. I don't know. I, I personally think that they at least made it to Angel Island. I don't know. They could have easily died in the water, but I, I want to believe they made the escape. I, it might be my like 10 year old self, like rooting for them to like get out like Clint Eastwood making his escape, getting out of, of jail. It's like the Shawshank Redemption, right? It's like that, that great escape thing where it's like against all odds against everything. These men figured out how to make a prison escape. And I think the paddles being on Angel Island, I think that supports me just enough to have like this glimmer of hope that they made it. So um, just for any prisoners out there listening, um, Paul Packard is willing to help you escape prison. (laughs) We do not. I don't know if we have to make a disclaimer here, but we do not advocate or believe Anyone who has been ruled guilty by our justice system um, should or shouldn't 
try to escape. That's not something that we're advocating for here. It's probably gonna have we're gonna have like a one listener in prison. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we get like a letter in the mail. <laughs> no, but you you actually you're kind of convincing me. Um, you're kind of convincing me though, because you're right. If these paddles were found on Angel Island, it is kind of hard to believe that um, the current would have swept them out to the ocean and then swept them back in. I mean, that's pretty. Yeah. Was it both paddles or just one? I think plural. I think I, I read. I think it was like a plural, but it could have just been one paddle. Um, okay, so if it was both of them, you have me convinced. I agree, they might have made it. But if it was just one paddle, I don't know. It might have just been the one one paddle. Oh, what's your dad think? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't ask him. Because I, I mean, I was looking at this picture. If you look up the picture of the brothers, um, it really kind of does look like the prisoners. But it's like grainy and kind of hard, and they have like the nineteen seventies style like haircuts and stuff and facial hair, yeah. So it's kind of hard to know. But like, supposedly their cousin got that picture of them too from South America. So it's like eh, <laughs> maybe they made it out. And the flowers, I think it's interesting that their mother got flowers every year until she died. It's like who was sending those flowers and stuff like that. It's like these little things that make you think like. There's enough there that suggests that they made it. And I'm going to hold on to that because I want to believe. I want to believe they made it. You want to believe in the bad guy. (laughs) Yeah, true. They are bad guys. But I just want to believe they made the escape. Once again, Paul Packard, if you want to try to escape prison. (laughs) (laughs) But are any other final thoughts before we wrap this up? No, I definitely, I, I do want to say, I definitely do not think that the body that was found five weeks later, halfway down the coast, is one of the guys. I think that was silly. I don't think that was it. I, I don't think it belongs to them either. If they were, if they did die in the water, I think that they're, they either A, would have been found like the, in the next couple of days when you had all the search parties, or their bodies wouldn't have been discovered at all if they were like eaten by sharks or whatever. I think it is interesting, though, that um, a partially decomposed skeleton was found a couple years later. But once again, 35 bodies. Yeah, there's 35 bodies that jumped from 60 to 62. But it would be nice, and I think only, um, uh, there's a number, I'm not sure the exact number, 13, I think, were recovered. Some of them actually landed, didn't land in the water. Some of them landed on, like, the shore, like, on the rocks below. So it's not a ton of bodies that actually, like, were never recovered. They recovered quite a few of them, but there's still enough bodies that weren't recovered that it could have easily been one of theirs. Um, I also think that when the um, the guy said that they they fled south, I think that that could have been a publicity thing to like say, hey, you know, they, these guys fled south, um, so we're safe. Everybody's safe. You know, like the FBI is like trying to cover their tracks like, oh, they got away, but don't worry, they're in the south. Like, they're not here anymore. Yeah, they're, they're not among us anymore. They're in Mexico. Don't worry about them. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, I'd feel safer, you know? Every, everyone in, in the society feels safer when you don't feel like there's three burglars out on the road ready to rob you. Yeah, true. All right, so thanks again for listening to The Anecdotalist. Uh, next week, we're going to break. It's going to be a break for us. Uh, the following Friday, we'll discuss the ghost of the Myrtle Plantation. Uh, so be sure to give us a review and a follow as we try to figure this thing out. 
Um, I realize now that we probably should be at least asking for a review and a follow because I think that'll help us with just doing this. I know people always say, oh, subscribe and like and all this stuff. I never really thought to do that. So if you like it, please review it. If you like it, please follow us. Um, we are hoping to keep expanding and keep putting more of these episodes out and getting more and more people listening as we as we go along here. But again, thanks again. We really appreciate everyone that sits through this mess <laughs> of words that we put together. I know sometimes it isn't the clearest, but um, we really try to put together some really good information and have some good um, dialogue as we talk through some, some really fun topics. So come back in two weeks for the ghosts of the Myrtle Plantation. Thanks, everybody.